3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.02 in the morning, so I'm running a little bit late. Sorry about that. Um, but hopefully you enjoyed that uh, classic Bart Willoughby track. Now, um, gosh, where am I? We have a, a big show, as usual, um, and some really exciting things to share with you about um, a couple of uh, upcoming events and uh, and issues, and uh, we might just uh, kick it off with a rundown of what's in the show. So, first of all, James Whitmore from 3CR's Out of the Blue program caught up with marine biologist Ty Barros on how megafires threaten estuarine and coastal ecosystems. And just a reminder, you can catch Out of the Blue on Sundays on 3CR from 11.30 a.m., and uh, you can listen back to their past programs at 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio Blue. After that, uh, we heard from Joshua Badge, who joined us to speak about the No Police at Pride LGBTQ Community Forum, which will be held next Thursday, the 27th of October at Hare Hole in Fitzroy. The forum aims to progress the conversation about the conflicted relationship between Victoria Police and the LGBTQ community and explore concerns about police participation and in Pride. After that, we're going to be joined by Cody Smith, who's a Canberra-based intersex educator, activist, and current senior projects officer at Intersex Human Rights Australia, or IHRA. And Cody's joining us to commemorate Intersex Awareness Day, which falls this coming Wednesday, the 26th of October. And this marks the anniversary of the first public demonstrations by intersex people in Boston, USA. So Cody will be speaking to us about their work for IHRA, unpacking the range of meanings within the intersex label and why intersex awareness is important every day. And finally, we're going to be joined by Footscray local historian and creator of the Footscray bot, Liz Crash, who speaks with us about urban planning and the unequal impacts of climate change on the Maribyrnong floodplain in the wake of last week's flooding events, which left homes in suburbs including Maribyrnong and Flemington inundated, while the Flemington racetrack stayed conspicuously dry. So um, I'm really excited for all of that. And um, we will head to a community service announcement before we come back to you with the news headlines. Black Spark is an independent, volunteer-run bookshop, gallery, music and community space in Northcote, Nam, dedicated to creativity, learning and liberation. Black Spark is a space for the entire community, free of charge, hosting art, music and literary events. To keep Black Spark free, open and accessible to everybody, we need your help. We are calling for your support for our rent fundraiser to keep our doors open into the coming years. With your support, we can continue to host book and exhibition launches, art auctions, fundraisers, music gigs and facilitate opportunities and growth for emerging artists and grassroots communities. For more information, visit Keep Black Spark Alive on chuffed.com or check out Black Spark on all the socials. Keep Black Spark Alive! A 3CR supporter. 
These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 20th of October. The federal government announced this week they would reverse the former Morrison government's decision to recognize West Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. The Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network welcomes the policy shift, saying the original decision was a flawed political stunt that should never have happened in the first place. The previous government decision undermined efforts for Palestinian self-determination and showed that the Morrison government was not interested in peaceful resolutions to Israel's occupation. Advocates say that this reversal brings Australia back to the international consensus, which is still quite a low bar. In other news, with a note for First Nations listeners that this headline contains distressing details about First Nations children. Arenta elders and closed Dondale grandmothers in the Northern Territory have called for a National Day of Action on Saturday 22nd of October to close Dondale and abolish youth prisons. This coincides with the visit of the United Nations Subcommittee on Prevention of Torture and Other Cruel, Inhumane or Degrading Treatment or Punishment. The UN inspectors arrived in Australia this week, coming just months after it was revealed that the Northern Territory government breached its own independent monitoring policy. This is amid a steep increase in the number of detainees at Dondale and other youth detention centres across Australia, with consistent reports of overcrowding, understaffing and skyrocketing rates of self-harm. Across the country, First Nations children are disproportionately represented in youth detention. Most are unsentenced and many have undiagnosed disabilities. Also in news headlines... Health insurer Medibank Private has confirmed that they received messages from a group seeking to negotiate with the company after an alleged hacking last week that resulted in the removal of customer data. Medibank holds a range of personal and health information of their customers. CEO David Kozar has apologized to customers, saying that the protection of their data remains a priority. The Medibank Group said that they're working with specialised cybersecurity firms and have notified the Australian Cybersecurity Centre. And finally, in headlines, Julian Assange's lawyer has spoken out again this week, warning the WikiLeaks founder will die behind bars unless an urgent political fix is secured. Assange has been held in the UK's high-security Belmarsh Prison for more than three years. Human rights lawyer Jennifer Robinson says the Australian government is complicit in his ongoing imprisonment and that the solution to his imprisonment needs to be political, not legal. Assange has suffered a number of health conditions, including a mini-stroke, COVID-19, severe depression and suicidal ideations, as he awaits a UK High Court appeal against his extradition to the US. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 20th of October. You're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. Now, just one more thing to add there. Uh, listeners will probably be aware that the Homes Not Prisons rally did not go ahead last Friday because of uh, concerns uh, about the flooding events. Community organizers decided to reschedule the rally for tomorrow. So here's some information about this new date for the Homes Not Prisons rally, which is happening tomorrow. That is Friday, the 21st of October.
In the lead up to the state election, join the Homes Not Prisons campaign for street theatre, speeches from people with a lived experience of criminalisation and a rally demanding investment in Aboriginal community controlled public housing for criminalised women and their families. 4pm on Friday the 21st of October at Parliament Steps in Nam, Melbourne. Keep the pressure on. Fund communities, not prisons and police. Friday, 21st of October, 4pm, Parliament Steps. Homes, not prisons, is a 3CR supporter. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And now we're going to listen to a segment from 3CR's Out of the Blue, where James Whitmore caught up with marine biologist Ty Barros on how megafires threaten estuarine and coastal ecosystems. The Black Summer bushfires burned 17 million hectares of eastern and southern Australia in 2019 and 2020, destroying habitat for wildlife and people's homes and livelihoods. But bushfires don't just affect the land, and as new research is showing, they also affect our seas. To find out more, I spoke to Ty Barros from the University of New South Wales. All right, Ty, can you take us back to 2019, 2020, when the extraordinary bushfires were happening on the east coast of Australia. Um, We know that they caused enormous destruction to the land ecosystems, but sometimes the marine ecosystems don't get a lot of attention. What have you found? Yeah, sure. So I'm sure that most of people remember the 2019-2020 bushfire season that we had here in Australia. Um, The country is covering smokes, right? A lot of people lost their houses. But in addition to all that destruction on land, there's also a lot of impact underwater that most of the times we don't realize or forget about. So whenever fire happens, it actually changes the concentration of organic matter in the soil. And then with the rainfall, all the organic matter as well as debris, sediment, nutrients, ash, and potential other pollutants they can be transported into waterways. And since many of the black summer fires, it was near a coastal areas, and in some cases, those fires, they actually stretch along the the whole catchment area. All those potential pollutants, they can be transported downstream, affecting estuaries and other marine areas as well. And so in your study, you did find that there was an increase in, in all this sediment and other stuff, ash and all that sort of thing going into the estuaries. Can you tell us how you did the study? Because to find out what happened after the fires, you also needed to know what was in the water before the fires. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, for sure. That's actually one of the unique parts of the study. That's quite rare and hard to have before data for natural disasters, right? Because we just don't know what's going to happen. And we are actually collecting samples for a completely different project when the bushfires started. So we had this perfectly designed before the fires data set. So we have data from immediately before and after the fires. And as you mentioned, like we measure a bunch of different indicators 
and every single variable that I measured increased after the fires. So what are some of those things that you're measuring? So our main link with bushfires, it's something called pyogenic carbon. It's the carbon formed during fires. We measured a bunch of different metals to try to check for like those toxic impacts. We measure nutrients like phosphor and nutrients, silt content, and some um, water quality measures as well. Mm. And so all of those things show that, yes, you know, the bushfires were having some sort of impact on, on these estuaries. Do you have any idea what sort of impact that might have had on marine organisms? There were some reports about, you know, um, oyster farms being affected. I've also, I think I remember a study about um, phytoplankton blooms um, out in the open ocean after the fires. Do you have any sense of what the impact might have been on uh, organisms in estuaries? Yeah, so we have a lack of scientific literature on impacts of bushfires on marine systems. But we do have a lot of information on freshwater ecosystems showing that increase of nutrients can can cause algal blooms. So that's probably one of those studies that you saw. Um, we know that the bushfires, they cause increase in the turbidity. So you just have so many more things in the water column. And that affects the future feeding animals like oysters and mussels. And there were quite a few reports after the Black Summer fires linking the fires with the mortality of freshwater fish and crustaceans. Mm. As you mentioned, um, these fires, I mean, we know that these fires were just so extraordinary. You mentioned the whole catchment area of, um, you know, some water systems were affected. Um, But can we expect, you know, similar impacts from, you know, fires that aren't as intense? That's when things get a bit complicated, right? Because what was quite particular for these fires is that it was very intense and it was quite close to the coastal areas. So in theory, yes, but depending on the intensity of the fire, the type of material that's being deposited in the water can be different because then you just have different forms of carbons depending on how much that tree burned, for example. And what's quite concerning is that the studies are actually showing us the fires like the ones that we had in 2019, 2020, they are supposed to happen more often. So if you think about how extreme that was, it's quite concerning to think about what if we, if we start having fires like that more and more often. Like, are those impacts going to start accumulating in the systems? Is the system going to be able to recover? Like, how resilient is it going to be? Mm. Yeah, I'm curious. What, do you have any ideas about what we can do about the impact of fires on waterways? I mean, apart from the big one of, you know, cutting down carbon emissions, so, you know, hopefully preventing them getting too much worse, is there other, other things that we can do on, on the edges, around estuaries, on the land, that kind of thing? Yeah, so one quite interesting thing that we found with this last paper it was that when we were analysing the estuaries, we actually separate them in categories. So we had unburn, because we need to have a control, and then we had burn areas with a buffer zone, and those were the estuaries where the riparian vegetation, that's that vegetation next to the water, 
that was intact and burn asteroids with our buffer zone where we didn't have the vegetation. And what we found is that the increased concentration only happened on the asteroids with our buffer zone. So the ones that had an intact repairing vegetation, they actually behave like the control areas. So that might be good news in a way of like, if we preserve the repairing vegetation, we are going to mitigate bushfire impact on asteroids, or at least is a pretty good first step, right? What I'm doing right now is actually investigating whether there was a consequence of just like a short-term impact, because maybe after six, 12 months, all the impact is going to come down to the asteroids anyways. So I don't know if the repairing zone is just going to delay the impact or it's going to come or it's going to protect it fully. But we know the short term, so immediately after the fires, it did at least mitigate the impacts from the bushfires. So that would be a good thing. Something that I would, that would actually be ideal would be that when bushfire management plans are made, they do include coastal areas because that's not something that happens. So marine environments, estuarine areas, they are not included in bushfire management plans. So it would be good to see those two parts communicating and then have coastal management plans, including bushfires and bushfire management plans, including um, marine areas. You mentioned that um, this isn't a very well-studied area. Do you know what, why, is, why hasn't anyone paid much attention to what happens to bushfires and what happens to the coasts during bushfires? I honestly don't think it was a threat that we had to deal with before, right? That's actually something that we argue in a paper, that those megafires, so that's how we call these fires, that they're so extreme and burn bigger areas with high intensity. We just didn't have fires like that reaching our coast with such intensity. So if you think about all the destruction that comes with those big fires, you have like people and then assets and wildlife and forests, until you get to the fresh water, it's already quite big of a stretch. But the coastal area, mainly because it's so dynamic, because asteroids you have like water coming from the downstream and the influence of tides, so it quite flushes out quickly in comparison mm. to the lake, for example. So I honestly think it was just not something that we had to deal with before. But unfortunately, it looks like we will have to. So in other words, it's sort of a new thing, that a new phenomena that we're starting to pay attention to as opposed to something yeah, that's happened all the time. Yeah, it is a way of looking at it because, like, we do have, like, eutrophication is one of the big issues with asteroids. That's when you have a lot of nutrients being deposited in the water. And then we have that with industry, ports, farm, farmland. And then now we have bushfires contributing to that. That was Ty Barros from the University of New South Wales. We just heard James Whitmore speaking to Ty Barros, a marine biologist, on how megafires threaten estuarine and coastal ecosystems. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM. And next up, we're going to go to a track... Down Under, Under One Sun by King Stingray.
is 7.26 a.m. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR. And now we're going to listen to a recording that I did earlier this week with Joshua Badge, who joined me to speak about the No Police at Pride LGBTQ Community Forum, which will be held next Thursday, the 27th of October at Hare Hole, formerly Hares and Hyenas in Fitzroy. The forum aims to progress the conversation about the conflicted relationship between Victoria Police and the LGBTQ community and to explore concerns about police participation in Pride. Joshua is a writer and scholar living on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne, working freelance in the LGBTQ health sector and pro bono in public health policy. Joshua, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. Anytime. So um, maybe to kick it off, could you start by reminding listeners a bit about Victoria Police's December 2021 Community and Policing Panel and a bit of the backlash that it received from quite a few members of the LGBTQ community in NARM? Yeah, absolutely. So might need to back up a step just to a few months prior to that, where the um, Victorian Pride Lobby released a report that showed that around three in five um, LGBTQ people do not trust police. And the report goes into a lot of detail about why and what that means. Um, but, you know, the, the, the gist of that report is just that actually there's quite a lot of problems in the relationship between Victoria Police and queer people. Um, and not formally as the response to that. You know, Victor didn't say that's what was happening, but shortly after they announced this town hall event in December of 2021 um, to talk about uh, transparency and accountability, um, community confidence and kind of opportunities for engagement between VicPol and the community. Um, and this was, uh, to my knowledge and the knowledge of everyone who I've asked this question to, uh, the first time ever that Victoria Police had run this kind of event for queer people. So it, it was of great historical significance. Um, and uh, myself and several other members of the campaign um, went to this town hall um, in order to see what they had to say. Um, and it was just a bit of a shambles, to be honest. Um, so uh, where to start? So firstly, it was closed to the media. Um, I know that, for example, a journalist from The Guardian asked to attend and uh, Vic Pohl said no, which is, you know, fine, but a bit sus, um, and it was also hosted by a um, media organisation that has a history of being pro-police, um, so that media organisation had an all-white board in 2021, um, and that board voted to support police marching in uniform at Pride, so they weren't really neutral mediators, um, and that played out uh, during the event where the MC was selectively filtering questions that had been sent in because um, uh, we could we could all see them all in this little app that they had um, and they were just softballing the questions um, and it, even uh, changing or adapting the questions to make them more palatable. Um, so there was one moment where one of the Vixen reps, Vixen is a sex worker organisation in Victoria, um, had to actually stand up and say, can you just ask the question as I wrote it? Um, so... All in all, it didn't really feel like Vipol was taking anyone's concerns very seriously. They made a number of commitments to produce documents or to kind of report back to the community, which they never did. Um, and all in all, everyone kind of came out of the room feeling a bit ick. Um, I think importantly for us, there was very little um, 
actual community representation in the room um, because it was organized by VicPol and because they um, hosted it during work hours and um, and because there were armed police officers, plural, in the room. Um, the attendees um, were a couple dozen representatives of organizations, you know, CEOs, board members, uh, that kind of thing, um, which didn't really feel genuinely consultative. Um, so that's the kind of short version of the uh, VicPol town hall from last year. Yeah, I mean, you know, covering all of that history, it really does kind of, you know, thinking thinking back on all of it, it really seems even more... Um, I don't know. It seems even more cynical um, thinking about the way that it was run. But I'm wondering if there have been any developments in the relationship between Victoria Police and the LGBTQ community in the state since the publication of that open letter that yourself and Frank Gaffer coordinated. You mentioned the campaign in response to that event. Um, I mean, it's only sort of been less than a year, but I'm, I'm wondering if anything's come out of that. Yeah, the short answer to that is no, not really. Um, so for context, um, we uh, started the campaign with an open letter from Victorian LGBTQ activists, artists, lawyers, academics, performers and writers, and that had about 150 high-profile queers who signed on to that. Um, and then we uh, shortly after circulated um, a petition uh, for community only um, and gathered a 1,000 signatures in... I want to say four days off the top of my head. Um, and we uh, provided both of these to VicPol directly um, and received no reply to either of them. So to date, um, VicPol has not replied to, to any of our communications, um, despite, you know, kind of saying publicly that they're working on their relationship uh, with community. Um, they have, uh, I understand that they have produced, for example, Something that came up in the town hall um, was uh, their uh, beat policy, which has been in production for several years now. And I understand that that exists, but I don't believe that they have published it anywhere or reported back to community about what it contains. Stunning. Fantastic. Uh, very <laughs> sounds very promising. So you and Frank have also been recently involved in bringing together an LGBTQ community forum, No Police at Pride, which is going to be held next Thursday, the 27th of October at Hare Hall in Fitzroy. What kinds of conversations are you hoping to progress through the forum? And why do you think it's so important to have these kinds of open public spaces for community discussion in contrast to the way that that other forum was run last year? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. So I guess the, in terms of points of difference, the main thing for us is that community are actually going to be there. <laughs> um, uh, and I'm very happy to report that we actually sold out, um, to the full capacity of the venue in under 48 hours. Um, and we were also fundraising to cover costs and we met our fundraising goal in under 48 hours. So there's a huge amount of community support behind it, which already, um, uh, differentiates it significantly from, uh, Big Poles Town Hall. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, what we're aiming to do. Um, we believe that community deserve a space to actually have an honest discussion about their issues with police and policing in this state. Um, and so our event aims to progress that discourse and that conversation um, uh, and further explore the issues around their ongoing participation uh, at Pride. Yeah, and I mean, I think uh, it's, 
you know, it's quite clear what some of the key issues are in terms of, you know, police's targeting of the LGBTQ community and people who have various intersecting identities in particular and especially First Nations people. Uh, but it is really exciting to think that there will be this space to, to take that next step to go, um, you know, we know uh, what some of the, the key issues are. Now, how do we work to kind of transform the way that we, you know, have public conversations and change um, change approaches to to police participation in these events based on, you know, knowing the kind of relationship that they continue to have with First Nations people and with our community. Um, so I was also uh, thinking that you might be able to, to situate this call for no police at Pride within a broader conversation about concerns with the corporatization of Pride and the way that a variety of different organizations, not just the cops, use their association with the LGBTQ community to, you know, pinkwash their conduct in other areas, including in ways that work to further marginalize members of our community. So why is it important to maintain a systemic analysis of these issues rather than, you know, every year having this Groundhog Day um, approach of, of looking at it in isolation? Yeah, it does feel a bit like Groundhog Day, which I guess is one of the reasons why we decided to um, uh, kick off the campaign because we were just kind of tired of having the same conversations every year. Um, and because we were having the same conversations with every year, every year Pride comes around and it's the only thing that we talk about. Um, in, in terms of kind of the, the broader context of um, corporatization and pinkwashing, I think it's really important just to ask the fundamental question of who and what Pride is for and what the presence of cops and corporations at Pride does for them and to us. Um, you know, it's not a neutral arrangement, and I would say that it's also not uh, an egalitarian one. Um, you know, there is a cost to having cops there, um, uh, and that involves, for example, many people, many queer people feeling unsafe to participate and attend. Um, you know, so uh, if... If pride is for queer people um, to um, express themselves publicly and, and feel proud and 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 and, and to protest, um, then it's failing under the current model. Um, and you know, it's it's kind of uh, uh, I think it's actually very useful to think about cops and corporations in a similar way because really they're doing a similar thing. They're extracting a particular kind of value, a particular kind of social capital. From our communities, particularly post uh, uh, postal survey and uh, gay marriage, um, because what that did, kind of normatively in the discourse of this country, uh, was demonstrate that homophobia is no longer the majority opinion, and so corporations and institutions, uh, and many institutions, you know, from universities to police, um, are now tripping over themselves to demonstrate how. LGBT friendly they are because, you know, it gets them a little gold star. Um, the reality of that is very different, um, obviously. Uh, and uh, in terms of uh, Vic Paul, I think that's demonstrated by uh, the um, gay and lesbian liaison officers. So uh, Vic Paul often touts these as kind of examples as to why uh the organization is doing well in terms of its engagement with LGBT people. But in reality, they're just 
a demonstration that the organization is so deeply homophobic and transphobic and queerphobic that we cannot safely interact with them, that we need special intermediaries to go between us and the organization, because the chances are if a, if a queer person, if a trans person walks into the local cop shop, they aren't going to actually get help or they will experience some kind of homophobia or transphobia at the hands of police. And this is very well documented. You know, we have, an, uh, we have uh, government reports that talk about cops talking, you know, joking, quote unquote, about taking gay people out the back and shooting them. You know, senior constables in not even regional and rural areas, but just outer suburbs of metropolitan areas. Um, so, you know, we have a huge amount of evidence for this in addition to our own personal experiences. Yeah, I mean, not even to mention, you know, all of the, the uproar around sharing pictures of Danny Laidley. Um, you know, this is uh-huh. all an incredibly widespread cultural phenomenon within the system of uh, police, within the carceral system more broadly. Mm-hmm. So it is, yeah, I think so important that you are kind of taking a focus here that looks to open up this conversation, look at how intersecting identities are affected by, um, you know, by policing and then see how we can move things forward. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to to um, keep in mind because obviously we're approaching this from the angle of our own experience. But one thing um, that we are especially trying to platform in our forum is that this isn't just about us. You know, queer people are not the only people who bear the brunt of police violence. Um, you know, so it's not just about what they're doing to our community, but what they're doing to other communities, what they're doing to First Nations people, what they're doing to people of colour, what they're doing to um, disabled people and people with very extreme um, mental health issues. Or, uh, so, you know, it's, it's, a, it's about taking that, uh, you know, recognising firstly that um, police interactions with queer people are, shall we say, suboptimal, um, but also that they are suboptimal with many other people who also deserve our time and attention and care. Yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like that there's a problem with the police as an institution. Uh, <laughs> so interesting. I'm so keen to see how the forum addresses this. So I, under, I understand that, as you mentioned before, the event's already sold out. But where can listeners find out more information, chip in to cover any further costs or speaker fees? And will there be an opportunity for those who missed out on a ticket to live stream or listen back? Um, those are all very good questions. Uh, so in terms of finding out more information or shipping in to cover costs, they can just go to our website, which is nopoliceatpride.com. Very easy to remember. Um, in terms of uh, opportunities for people who missed out on an in-person ticket, we're currently exploring uh, live stream options. So, you know, we are fully a grassroots community campaign, so we just need to um, uh, kind of uh, peg down the equipment necessary to do that um, and set that up. But I'm pretty confident that we'll be able to live stream it. Um, as for listening back, that's also something we're considering, but we also have to be aware of people's privacy and the fact that, um, you know, the uh, um, the organization that we're going up against has a $3.5 billion budget. And so they will definitely have the time and resources to uh, go back and listen to, listen to it uh, themselves. Um, so uh, uh, I guess stay tuned on that front. Um, check out the website uh, or you can follow uh, myself or the other organizer, Frank Gaffer, on on Twitter or Instagram, um, where we'll be posting lots in the lead up. 
Excellent. Well, we'll have links to all of that in our show notes. And yeah, listeners, definitely head to nopoliceatpride.com to stay tuned. I'm amazed that you were able to grab that URL. Um, <laughs> and thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, and I'll see everyone at the forum. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. We just heard a chat between Priya and Joshua Bat. Uh, Badge, who joined us to speak about the No Police at Pride LGB Community Forum, which will be held next Thursday, the 27th of October, at Hare Hall in Fitzroy. And next up, I am excited to welcome Cody Smith, who is a Canberra-based intersex educator, activist and current senior projects officer at Intersex Human Rights Australia, a.k.a. IHRA. Cody joins us to commemorate Intersex Awareness Day, which falls on this coming Wednesday, the 26th of October. 26th of October marks the anniversary of some of the first public demonstrations by intersex people in Boston, USA. Today, Cody will be speaking to us about their work for IHRA, unpacking the range of meanings within the intersex label and why Intersex Awareness Day is important every day. Welcome, Cody. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right, I'm pleased to be here. I thought we could start by introducing yourself. Um, would you be able to tell me a bit about IRHA and the recent work you've been doing alongside the organisation? I think you've already done a pretty good job of uh, introducing me. Um, I, I guess, like, um, yeah, I, I was born in uh, Canberra with an intersex variation. I experienced medical intervention from an early age, and I guess I've been fairly dedicated to just um, ensuring that uh, the sort of experiences of medical violence that I had as a child are not things that intersex people have to go through anymore. So I'm very much focused on um, uh, legislative efforts in the ACT, uh, and there's a lot of knock-on effects uh, in, in other jurisdictions across Australia with that legislation. Um, at ERA, I'm very focused on um, re- um, resource projects, and I also um, uh, I'm starting to do, uh, uh, dip my toe a little more into social media. So uh, ERA, uh, Intersex Human Rights Australia, first started off as Organisation Intersex International Australia, 
2009, and we're one of the only um, charity organisations in Australia that intersex-led to work on intersex human rights. Thank you you for sharing that bit of background, Cody. Um, Next up, I wanted to go over like maybe a basic definition of the term intersex and unpack the complexities of language in the intersex space. I know you've done some work on this. So intersex is a broad label and there is no single experience for people who fall under this umbrella. I was reflecting on how I thought a big barrier when it comes to discussing intersex awareness is due to a lack of understanding on how to use inclusive and appropriate language. Could you speak to how we can improve our conversations as intersex allies and maybe as people who have recently identified with intersex variations? Sure. Um, so the working definition that we use at ERA is um, that intersex people have innate sex characteristics that don't fit medical and social norms for female or male bodies that create risks or experiences of stigma, discrimination and harm. So... Um, to unpack that a little bit is um, intersex is um, a term of physical attributes. Uh, if you think about like um, sex and gender being like um, a Lego model, when we talk about sex characteristics, we're talking about the pieces um, of pieces of Lego that make up the Lego model. And intersex people still have um, the same Lego model as everyone else, just that some of the pieces um, that are used to build that Lego model are different. Um, so. Intersex is an interesting word because, um, like you said, it's a very, very broad term. It's an umbrella term that covers about uh, 40 different diagnoses. Um, and uh, it's also a term that's sort of um, even a little bit contested in the space in terms of um, a lot of intersex people have access to different types of language or may not even have access to uh, information about being intersex at all. Mm. So um, other terms that people might uh, you might hear uh, that are associated with uh, intersex uh, are words like hermaphrodite, which is largely considered offensive uh, these days, or disorders or differences of sex development, which uh, some intersex people prefer because they are more comfortable with a medical model or a medical understanding uh, of themselves, uh, or they um, uh, or they may reject the, like, um, I guess, like the association with the queer rights um, movement, which, um, like, the intersex human rights movement, I think, is fairly well established on its own terms today, but um, some people just get a little bit funny about that. Uh, At the end of the day, when it comes to, like, best practice language, we use intersex and variations of sex characteristics as best practice language at ERA, but um, you always have to make space to engage with people on, um, on their own terms. So if that's access to a diagnostic terms, if it's, uh, if it's DSD, if it's a hermaphrodite, uh, you kind of um, got to respect well, how people understand themselves in our space. Mm. It sounds like um, self-determined labels is a really important aspect of negotiating a space where there's so much overlap uh, for different communities. Like, you know, you could be identifying as queer, you could be going by binary gender um, identifiers and, yeah, there's no 
one assumption of how people are going to talk about themselves or describe or identify if they uh, have an intersex variation. So, yeah, thank you for unpacking that a bit for us. Uh, As I mentioned earlier, Intersex Awareness Day falls on the anniversary of some really important public actions from the intersex community in Boston, USA in 1996. Um, This is actually fairly recent, so I thought maybe you could give us some more historical context on what triggered this act of resistance in 1996 and how do you think this history of intersex resistance has bolstered voices in more recent movements? Mm, um, so, yeah, boy, we could be here for the next hour talking about this, but I guess to um, get at the meat of it is that uh, I, I touched on this a little bit earlier, that um, intersex conditions are largely seen as um, abnormal, even though uh, many intersex people are perfectly healthy. And so it's been very, very normal to subject uh, intersex children to normalizing procedures um, uh, without consent. So that involves surgical intervention and hormonal intervention and uh, sometimes other medical procedures as well. And um, basically the, uh, the core of the intersex human rights movement is a rejection that um, uh, we can't be happy and healthy in our own bodies, a rejection that we need to be normalised and and a focus on um, building uh, bodily autonomy and informed consent into um, medical processes. And this aspect of the human rights movement really got its um, birthplace in in, in Boston um, in 1996 where uh, Max Beck and Morgan Holmes, two very instrumental um, intersex ad- uh, advocates in the US, uh, ended up protesting at a pediatric uh, conference, which, um, uh, like, pediatricians are largely held sort of, um, uh, I guess, responsible for um, these normalizing procedures that intersex people have been subject to for so long. So, <clears throat> um, yeah, it's a... Uh, there was an intent to participate in the conference um, mm. and uh, present um, like uh, a case that uh, intersex people didn't need to be fixed. Uh, and then they were basically met with hostility and escorted out of the conference. Um, and so they stood outside of the conference carrying a sign saying hermaphrodites with attitudes, which was a little bit of the rallying cry for the early human rights movement Um because largely doctors would describe the, um, the people who were, I guess, like um, stirring up trouble uh, as like um, people who are fundamentally unhappy with the way they've been treated um, and that they were the ones that were abnormal for being un- unhappy. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the history of medical interventions um, for intersex people is really quite horrifying and um, it's I think there is a lack of awareness about it um, and this is partly due to the fact that a lot of intersex people um, are not actually told about their diagnosis by medical professionals even after it's been officially made that information can be kept from them uh, and so a lot of people 
you know, may not find out until they're much older and, yeah, don't even know that these are things that have actually been violated for them. Um, although I'm sure you can feel it in other parts of your life, you know, as an intersex person, the impact that um, these medical interventions have because they can have a lot of negative health repercussions. Uh, so lastly, I wanted to ask, how can listeners incorporate intersex awareness into their everyday resistance? And do you have any recommendations for resources for people to get more informed about this online? Uh, I think uh, that uh, you're quite right that intersex issues aren't necessarily understood uh, very well on our own terms. And there's a tendency, uh, especially in the LGBTIQ community, uh, for intersex people to be treated as a rhetorical device uh, in, in the sense that uh, we often get used as a biological um, basis to prop up uh, transgender and mm. uh, non-binary identities. But the reality is that you know, if um, if we got rid of all the intersex people, there'd still be transgender and gender diverse people. If we got rid of all the transgender and gender diverse people, we still have intersex people. So in that sense, like uh, good intersex allyship looks like understanding us on our own terms um, and understanding our issues and being able to um, advocate on our behalf and um, I guess like um, boost the profile of what we're fighting against. And there's honestly no better way to do that than to have a look at the Darlington Statement, which was a human rights statement published in 2017, where a group of us came together and set out the legal and social priorities of the intersex human rights movement. Um, so if you go to darlington.org.au forward slash statement, you can actually read about what intersex issues in Australia look like. And you can actually put your name in uh, supporting um, our cause on that website as well. There's an affirmation statement that allows uh, allies to uh, put more weight to the Darlington Statement, and that helps us in our advocacy. If you want to learn more about intersex rights, um, ERA has been publishing resources since 2009. There's a huge archive that's just dense with information. We've got media guides, um, because um, uh, briefing papers about sports and IVF and all, all sorts of things. We have submissions to various Senate committees and so on and so forth. There's, there's a little bit of something there for everyone, and um, you can find all of our resources at era.org.au. Cody, thank you so much. Um, yeah, I think it's really important that we remember Although um, transgender rights and intersex awareness may overlap in some ways and in some communities, the two don't need to prop each other up and they're both valid issues in their own right. Um, Cody, thank you so much. I'll make sure to include those resources in the show notes and thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. We just heard from Cody Smith, who is a Canberra-based intersex educator, activist and current senior projects officer at Intersex Human Rights Australia. Cody joined us to commemorate Intersex Awareness Day, which falls on this coming Wednesday, the 26th of October. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM.
They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. VCR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Come and at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is... A bad deal, but Muckley is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchus Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. Accent of women. It seems so obvious to me that if you live in a, in a completely violent um, cultural milieu that it's going to translate into every aspect of women's lives. Accent of women. What's a border? They don't see it like a big wall right along the... How can people live ordinary lives when they're living in such an extraordinary situation where there are two, where there are armies there and terrorists there, such conflict every single day of their lives? Accent to Women. A show by and about women from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. On Community Radio 3CR. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 8 o'clock in the morning, and we are joined by Footscray local historian Liz Crash to speak with us about urban planning and the unequal impacts of climate change on the Maribyrnong floodplain in the wake of last week's flooding events, which left homes and suburbs, including Maribyrnong and Flemington, inundated, while the Flemington racetrack stayed conspicuously dry. Liz, thanks for joining us this morning. No worries. Happy to be here. Yeah, I mean, it is a pleasure to have you on with your knowledge of the area, but also I really appreciate the analysis that you bring to this issue because when we think about uh, the way that the flooding events have sort of happened, and I guess, you know, every time we have these kinds of flooding events um, where we have to think about it in terms of being 
on stolen land that has been developed in particular ways with, you know, successive planning decisions over time uh, so that when we're looking at the way that river systems work um, and the way that these flooding events occur, there's this sort of much deeper history to events like last week's. Absolutely. And it's everybody's having a go at the Victorian Racing Club and absolutely it is deserved. Right? They've made no friends. Um, I think that, um, look, if anybody is looking for a job as a media advisor, I reckon they should approach the VRC because like, their approach was just to go onto the news and say, oh, well, we're entitled to do this. Um, Kensington residents are furious, but it's the whole river system that's been developed um, and has been changed and has been kind of gutted um, yet by really successive ways of settlement. Um, and I think what this is really about is, yeah, just disrespect for river systems and wetlands um, and mm. floodplains. So yeah. the whole, like, um, area of, like, Melbourne was pre-colonisation was kind of a a seasonal river delta and, like, network of wetlands. Um, there were many, many, many of the areas that are now built up and that are now experienced flooding, um, yeah, were not consistently dry land prior to European settlement. And the flood claim that's now the Flemington Race Course is only one of those. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, I think the... Um there's been this sort of interesting, um, you know, like, I don't know. Interesting is a weird way to put it. It's sort of the, the like hubris of colonial development to be like, yeah. well, you know, we want to build here. Um, you know, this is prime real estate that we're going to take up. And, um, there being like, you know, planning decisions that don't take into consideration the fact that rivers breach their banks sometimes. Um, and so, yeah, I'm wondering, um, if you can maybe talk a little bit about the, the purpose of maintaining a floodplain rather than building all the way up to the riverbanks and, you know, why those areas exist in the first place. Absolutely. So, um, Melbourne is flat, right? Pretty much. Like, especially in the kind of inner areas near the bay. Um, and what that means is that when rivers like the Maribyrnong do burst their banks, um, that what you get is a very, very wide flooded area. Now, it's not very deep, right? Um, it's floods that, like, the Maribyrnong doesn't burst its bank very often, mm. but when it does, it creates a very, very shallow flood for a very, around a very wide area. So it might seem like, ah, oh, there's a lot of land that is nice and flat that's, like, a long way back from the river in many cases. And I like it's 20, 50, 100 metres back. Oh, that seems fine. Those are seasonal floodplains, um, and, uh, you know, like, they are seasonal floodplains that historically haven't been flooded that often, right? Maybe once every 20 years or once every 100 years with floods of this scale. Um, I think that the last flood of this kind of magnitude was in the 70s, mm-hmm. um, and then before that, um, the last flood of that magnitude was in the 30s, but obviously these are becoming more common with climate change, right? Um and that, I think, is why the VSC built that flood wall. Like, I don't think that they were just worried about, like, a once-in-every-hundred-year event. Mm-hmm. I think they saw that these kind of flooding events were going to become more common. And they were like, 
okay, we're going to protect our own interests and we're going to push that water back, you know, to elsewhere. Who cares? Who cares what it's going to learn? And I think we're going to see more and more of that kind of privatised um, protection from natural disasters, uh, kind of a gated community, like private flood walls kind of stuff. And it's very, um, it is very concerning, absolutely. But the Maravanong area has also had, like, lots and lots of inappropriate housing development right up under the floodplain, and that is the area that was most affected by flooding. So, and that was a bit upstream from the rest of There's housing development there that was um, required to kind of build, like, a constructed wetland um, in order to be allowed to build on the floodplain. My understanding is that, so that's the Edgewater development in Maravanong, mm-hmm. if anyone knows that. My understanding is that that wetland has proven to be not very effective at flood mitigation because it was over-engineered. Um, certainly, it wasn't particularly effective this time. So I think that there's there's this real desire, I think, to kind of in- make, like, intensify land use mm-hmm. and to kind of try to squish on, like, all of this flood mitigation stuff into a constructed wetland that's, like, extra deep or extra efficient somehow. But you kind of just can't do that. Yeah. So I think a lot of, yeah, the flooding is not, the flooding is not solely to do with the PSA. Yeah, I mean, like, I think something that people do fundamentally forget is that the way that Melbourne was sort of constructed in the early days of, of colonization um, in, in this area was also just about, you know, like pushing rivers underground. Um, and Absolutely. yeah, and so I like listeners might remember in 2020, I did an interview with, um, Bridget Chappelle about a, a work that they did called Undertow, which was really looking at mapping the, the sort of underground river systems that like run through the city, run under Melbourne University. Um, you know, there's, there's this whole network of underground, um, waterways that have sort of, um, you know, they have this potential to flood with increasingly frequent climate events. Um, and there's no reason to be surprised in, in a sense that, that these things are happening. Um, but there is a lot of reason to, you know, scrutinize planning decisions and, um, you know, a, planning approvals around things like these these housing developments on the floodplain um, and, and the, the Flemington flood wall. Um, so I also know that there is now there's now been a review announced into the the impacts of the Flemington flood wall, um, and there have been some concerns around the independence of this review. And I'm kind of wondering how this um, how those concerns, how the review itself ties into some of those broader issues around um, around planning decisions and infrastructure um, and you know water management in the city of Melbourne uh, more broadly. Yeah, totally. So this is actually something that um, me and my friend Jinghai Chan looked at in our local history podcast series, which we called Underfoot, so Underfoot, Undertow. So, like, everybody's all getting into the, the underlying dynamics. Beautiful. And, yeah, we looked at stuff like the, the, the development of the West Melbourne Swamp into what is now Dockland, right? So it was drained and spilled. Um, the Yarra, the whole, like... um like lower course of the area was dredged, um, partly to prevent flooding. Um, 
And that was very, very destructive to local ecosystems. And one of the reasons for that and for similar development to the Maribyrnong um, was for industry, right? So that kind of um, puts grey in there that in the West, like, a bit gentrified now, but historically was um, uh, an industrial suburb. And now it's kind of like earmarked for intensive development. So it's been a state government policy to encourage development in the Footscray and Maribyrnong area, um, the inner west. And that's meant um, often like going over the head of local governments. So when there was the, the flood was proposed in like a three or four, um, all of the local governments like adjoining this bit of the lower Maribyrnong, so that's the city of Maribyrnong, the city of Melbourne proper and the city of Mooney Ponds, all of which were massively affected by flooding, all of them protested about it. Um, and that was overridden by the state government. And they can get away with that kind of because of the history of these inner west suburbs as as labor strongholds, particularly the city of Maribyrnong. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very taken for granted by the labor government. It was a labor government at the time. Um, and uh, it's, it just had no real political costs for them. Um and uh, the um, review was very... I think what's interesting about it is I had a look at... I wasn't able to access the original um, review that approved, that said the flood wall was fine. No one's been able to access it. Um, I've had journos asking me, have you seen it? And I'm like, no. And they're like, well, we haven't seen it. We asked Northern Water about it. But I've read some of the Northern Water policies incorporating that document, and there's not much of a distinction being made between different types of floods and flood water. Um, so there's most flood planning in Melbourne and around Melbourne is based around flash flooding, right? Mm-hmm. So flash flooding is generally, in urban areas, is generally due to runoff from hard surfaces, overwhelming the stormwater system, which, as you're saying, are in many cases former creeks or wetland systems that were kind of pushed underground or pushed into concrete channels that don't have that kind of absorbent capacity. Um, and they become temporarily overwhelmed and back up um, quite frequently. All Melbourne's flood planning is based around that pretty much. What's much rarer is this kind of riverine flooding, which is what we saw in Melbourne um, last week. So, you've got, you know, heaps and heaps of rain in the catchment area with the Maribyrnong, so the Macedon Ranges. Um, similar story with the Werribee River. And that's been coming down very, very slowly over a large amount of time. And that's not been taken into account in really any of the flood modelling as far as I can tell. The difference between preferring flooding and yeah, flash flooding. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, this is kind of, um, if you've been to, have you been to Westbury recently? Uh, not recently. Yeah, or in the last like, couple, if you've been any time in the last couple of years, you might have seen those. I've definitely been in the last flats. couple of years. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen those flats down near the river? Yeah. Those enormous flats. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And if you've ever been at night, you'll see that very few of them are occupied. Only a very, very few of them mm-hmm. have their lights on. And I'm like, sure, maybe some of them are out partying, but it can't be all of them. They're 90% unoccupied. Um, that's because they've been very, very actively pushed and facilitated by state government planning schemes. Like, they kind of get to sidestep all of the local council planning commissions. And that's what ha- exactly what happened with the VSC flood wall. Mm-hmm. Like... Um, the state government wants to encourage development of the inner west, and they are, in my opinion, are pretty much beholden to the 
of developers mm-hmm. and business lobbyists. Racing is a big industry, um, and it's got a powerful lobby group. Um, and I think at this point, it's kind of on the state government and on Melbourne Water, which is a you know, quasi-independent body, to demonstrate that they weren't inappropriately influenced by those lobbyist influences. Mm. Um, because, yeah, there were three protests. There were two independent reviews, both of which said the proposed flood modelling was, in, um, was inadequate in the Flemington flood wall proposal. Um, the data that they used for the first test of the risk of flood was, based, was from 1986, which was hopelessly inadequate, mm-hmm. sure, in 2004. Like, they definitely had more recent data. I'm not clear on why they used data from 1986. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, like, it's just really... It's not... It's really hard to justify. And whether or not that flood wall was a major contributor to flooding in the area, I think it was certainly a contributor to local flooding. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it would have contributed to flooding upstream. It's possible. We just don't know. Yeah. And it looks sus, and people are furious about it. No, totally. And, I mean, I think it does, um, you know, feed into this um, this much wider conversation, you know, whether or not the the flood wall as an individual piece of infrastructure, um, you know, was ultimately the factor that, that led to this kind of flooding. Obviously, what you've said um, leads you know, to or sort of lends itself to a much more complex analysis of the way that, um, you know, building decisions in a, in a variety of different ways um, and are sort of intersecting with the, the more frequent impacts of, of climate change. And on that, I'm kind of also thinking about climate change mitigation and adaptation um, and, you know, how we're going to have to be implementing those into uh, urban planning, you know, uh, residential infrastructure design decisions. Um, and also the way that this has kind of led to unequal impacts, because obviously people are furious about the, the VRC Flemington flood wall because it has had such an obvious impact um, on uh, on communities that are already, you know, like marginalized and living in, in those areas. And um, I'm wondering how this kind of also intersects with communities frequently left scrambling to sort things out after nat- natural disasters. I mean, if you think about northern New South Wales, southern Queensland, folks are still homeless there. Yeah, and absolutely. I think the thing is, is like, even if the flood wall contributed nothing to the flooding, it's an ugly look to see, like, this incredibly wealthy organisation congratulating themselves on managing to protect, managing to protect themselves and nobody else from floods. They're just like, not my business, don't care. Um, I think it's really interesting. If you have a look on some of the, on like news.com.au or like any of those like kind of you know, corporate news sites, um, and say, have a look at the comments on these stories. There's a, just a flood of these really kind of pro-business, like reactionary. Um, I was going to say reactionary boomers, and I was like, that's not fair. I don't know that they're boomers. Um, reactionary people being like, well, if I build a flood wall on my property, am I responsible for what happens to my neighbour? Like, they just were, respect, were protecting their personal interests. Like, you know, it's what anyone doing. I'm like, yeah, you, you are. We're responsible what happens to our neighbours. Um, and that's what I find really alarming, this kind of 
idea that yeah, we're not responsible for our neighbours, that we're not responsible for our community, that we're only responsible for ourselves and protecting ourselves. Because, of course, most people in the Flemington, Kensington area can't afford to build a flood wall. Like, um, and most people wouldn't get planning permission to build a flood wall. Um, but yet, as you're saying, there's, there's a large population of people in Flemington, like there's in Flemington, Kensington, there's people who live in public housing flats in that area. They wouldn't be, like, why aren't they building a flood wall around the flats? Mm. Um, probably because it's not a good idea to build a flood wall in that area because it's just going to redirect it somewhere, somewhere mm. else. But some people don't care about that, I guess. Yeah. I mean, people need to, you know, it's it's not just a... I mean, the the disparity is just so stark, you know, who in terms of who uh, attends the races and, um, you know, who actually uses that track versus the people that are using the on the ground urban infrastructure of like walking, cycling, uh, driving, you know, to be able to sort of live in that area. And it's really some like parable of the sower kind of <laughs> I was actually just thinking of yeah parable of the sower um yeah like that which is you know this was a story about climate change and in the near future with then gated communities mm-hmm. um yeah and I I was reading this article recently which is about um luxury apartments in London and London obviously has undergone not just gentrification but hyper gentrification so it's no longer just um being no longer just a case where the urban dynamic is being changed by the middle and upper middle class, but by the, the wealthy and the ultra wealthy. So there's all of these like luxury basements being built in London. Mm-hmm. Um, so with like pool rooms, like underground swimming pools, ballrooms, like, um, I heard of one that had an underground waterfall. What? Um, and all of those are, of course, massively contributing to flooding. Mm-hmm. In London, right? Because like, not only it's not like it's like I built a flood wall around all of the underground. Um, the ground just doesn't take in any water mm-hmm. in those areas, so it floods. Um, and but also, they're very secretive. It's there's a there's a kind of response to increasing inequality. Um, is increasing privatization of, of land. Like, so, you know, mm-hmm. if, you, if you're in an increasingly unequal society, people start to get a bit stroppy about above ground. So maybe you put it underground. Um, and then that putting it underground is something that you can do if you've got a lot of money. And it makes the society increasingly unequal just by doing it. Um, it it may, massively increases the risk of flooding to the many years. Um, marginalised and uh, diverse and impoverished communities that do exist still in London. And I think we're going to see that in more and more places worldwide. This increasing privatisation and even secrecy of the of incredible luxury mm-hmm. at the expense of most people. Um, anyway, I'm not saying that the VRC has like an underground waterfall, but I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, like, we don't I we think, don't know either way whether they have a bunker with a waterfall in it. Um, well, I've never, I haven't been to the to the races in. I don't know if I've ever been to the races. I've been to the race course, but yeah, I haven't done a full like underground sauna. I think I don't know. Maybe yeah. they've got a waterfall. It's not for like us. What we're saying is VRC. Um, please 
let us know if you if you have a it, it'll be important to to find out in this review um all right, lest I tread into dangerous territory, um, I also wanted to kind of round this out by thinking about the fact that it is anti-poverty week this week. Oh, my God. Um, and I have, I, th- I think I, I, I understand there was some reporting on the fact that some of the people that have been hit by the floods in, in the West um, are not eligible for crisis payments. And I was wondering if you could kind of, uh, maybe round this conversation out by speaking about, you know, these unequal effects of climate change and planning decisions when it also comes to massive wealth inequality in terms of uh, income support and social security. Yeah, well, it's a similar thing, actually, to what we saw in um, Sydney with the recent flood. So the city of Melbourne was not defined as a flood-affected area the local government area of the city of Melbourne, not greater metropolitan Melbourne. Um, It was the local government areas that were defined as flood-affected were, I think, city of Maribyrnong and maybe city of Mooney Valley. Um, But city of Melbourne was excluded from that, and that means that the people who are most likely to have been directly affected by the VSO flood wall, so people in Flemington, Kensington, the surrounding low-lying areas, uh, yeah are not eligible for flood assistance. And that was, it was a similar thing in Sydney, right? So, like, city of Sydney, like, mm-hmm. inner, inner west areas and stuff were not defined flood-affected, even though people were clearly flooded. And that kind of thing is a kind of bureaucratic violence, really, that most affects people who don't have private resources. So mm-hmm. people who are living from paycheck to paycheck or people who are living on the dole. And, yeah, like, if you don't have that kind of, those kind of resources, you have no cushion, like, you can't replace your belongings that have been destroyed by flood water. Like, you can't stay in a hotel while you sort out what's going on in your accommodation. Like, you're screwed. Like, mm-hmm. and uh, unless, obviously many people are able to kind of lean on friends and family and stuff. Like, I, I don't want to, um, like, kind of erase the really important work that people without a lot of resources are doing to keep their friends and family and communities afloat. <laughs> but but it's hard. It's it's really hard to prepare for a disaster when you have no cushion, when you have no uh, kind of margin of error. And that's the situation that more and more people in places like Australia that have formerly been mm. kind of wealthier but more and more experiencing extreme inequality, are. that's the kind of situation that many, many people are dealing with is just, yeah, Maybe there's an evacuation order. Where are you going to go? Yeah, absolutely. I think, like, yeah, looking looking at the the way that the flood effects have have sort of dragged out across the year, um, you know, in sort of the northern northern parts of the east coast of Australia, I think is yeah, it's it's devastating, and it is such a like a horrible testament of things to come if we don't see change. So uh, election coming up, everybody. Um, you know, stay tuned and uh, use use your vote wisely if you choose to vote. Um, um, yeah, and yeah. don't rely on your vote because as with in places like um, Maribyrnong and Flemington, um, especially in places like Maribyrnong, mm-hmm. your vote often literally will change nothing. Like, Absolutely that, true. In terms of that state election. So in places that are traditional working class areas, uh, even if they're not becoming gentrified, We've got to look beyond the ballot box mm-hmm. because the Labor Party really take our communities for granted and mm-hmm. take our support for granted. And electorally, they've historically been correct to do so on a, you know, a, a 
pinnacle strategic level. But yeah, mm-hmm. and that's what 3 is for, of course. Yeah. Well, we're here to, to say, um, you know, the election's coming up. Maybe talk to your neighbours. Yeah, and support your local wetland. Yeah. Um, look, Liz, thank you so much for joining us this morning. This has been an excellent conversation, a bit of a bit of a windy um, and complex one, but, you know, a lot like the river systems that we've pushed uh, under the city of Melbourne, definitely not something that can be kept down for long. So uh, thank you so much for chatting with us this morning. All right. Have a great morning, everyone, and some rides. Take care. And that was Footscray local historian Liz Crash. She spoke with us about urban planning and the unequal impacts of climate change on the Maribyrnong floodplain in the wake of last week's flooding events, which left homes and suburbs, including Maribyrnong and Flemington, inundated while the Flemington racetrack stayed conspicuously dry. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. 3CR would like to thank our sponsors, Earth Greetings. Cards that connect, care, and celebrate. Support wildlife and habitat with every purchase. Inspired by nature, giving back to the planet. Learn more at earthgreetings.com.au. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual. Knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. And we are coming up to the end of today's show on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is coming up to 828 in the morning and we will just give you a quick rundown of what we talked about today. So do you want to kick us off? Yeah. So first up, um, we heard a recording of James Whitmore speaking to marine biologist Ty Barros on how megafires threaten estuarine and coastal ecosystems. And you can catch the whole episode of Out of the Blue on Sundays, 3CR at 11.30 a.m. Excellent. And after that, we heard a conversation I had earlier this week with Joshua Badge about the No Police at Pride LGBTQ Community Forum, which will be held next Thursday, the 27th of October at Hare Hall in Fitzroy. And the forum aims to progress the conversation about the conflicted relationship between Victoria Police and the LGBTQ community and explore concerns about police participation in Pride. And then we heard from Cody Smith, who joined us to commemorate Intersex Awareness Day, which will fall on this coming Wednesday, the 26th of October. The 26th of October marks the anniversary of the first public demonstrations by intersex people in Boston, USA. Cody spoke to us about their work for IHRA, unpacking the range of meanings within the intersex label and why Intersex Awareness Day is important every day. And finally, uh, we were just joined by Footscray local historian Liz Crash 
to talk with us about urban planning and unequal impacts of climate change on the Maribyrnong floodplain in the wake of last week's flooding events. And uh, for listeners, I encourage you to stay up to date with the Bureau of Meteorology's updates uh, just in case you are in areas that may be flood affected. Uh, Please stay safe. uh, Keep up to date with those warnings. We've got um, a lot more rain to come later this week, but we'll catch you next week. So stay safe till then. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.